Hi, I'm Eric Gurna of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. So I'm here in Swan Lake in, in upstate New York, Sullivan County, with Michael Edwards, who is a writer and activist affiliated with the think tank Demos in New York. And uh, he's also formerly a director of the Ford Foundation's Governance and Civil Society Program, worked for the World Bank, Oxfam, Save the Children, and lots of other um, esteemed organizations. So thank you and for, for doing this and welcome to Please Speak Freely. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. So uh, I, what, what drew me to you is this book that I hold in my hand right now, Small Change, Why Business Won't Save the World. I want to talk a little bit about what the book's about, but maybe you could summarize a little bit about you know, what, what your work is about and in particular what, why you wrote this book. Mm -hmm. Well, I've spent, uh, what, now 35 years, um, really the whole of my career, trying to find ways to support people who are doing work in communities and schools and nonprofits in different parts of the world um, to do their work as well as they can, to do it in a way which really empowers people and doesn't make them dependent, which is as democratic as it can be, because mm. uh, I think all good work tries to be democratic and liberating and empowering in that way. And, and what I've found is how difficult it is for a funding agency, particularly a large funding agency, whether it's a foundation or a bank or a corporate donor or a government, be, to be really useful to people on the ground who are doing their work. You know, and so often we get in their way, we do the wrong thing, we tie them up in knots, we you know, put all sorts of restrictions, we have strings attached to the money that we give. And not surprisingly, it doesn't work very well. Uh, and so all my life I've been trying to find ways to, to do that very simple job, if you like, more effectively. If you have money, what's the best way of putting it at the service of people doing the work on the ground mm -hmm. so that they can do what they need to do as effectively as they can? Sounds mind-numbingly simple, but it's actually really difficult. And the reason I wrote the book, it was because I thought my world of donor agencies and funders and so on was going in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Rather than reforming itself so that it could be more effective, it was becoming more and more distant from communities. It was becoming more and more technical and technocratic it was becoming less and less, I think, something that was genuinely supportive of people on the ground and more and more a sort of control system where people in bureaucracies hundreds of miles away were making decisions which were not informed by realities on the ground and yet were very important in determining what people could do. So the point of the book is to try and challenge the direction of philanthropy and mm -hmm. say, this isn't working, we need to do better. Mm -hmm. And the, the book, the subtitle is Why Business Won't Save the World. And but the book is mostly about philanthropy. Um, can you talk a little bit about why why that's the the message there is you know why business won't save mm -hmm. the world um, as opposed to you know why you know funders who sit up in their ivory tower won't save the world? Well, the reason is pretty simple. It's because over the last few years, philanthropy has effectively been, I would say, taken over by business. Mm. 
They used to be very separate. They used to be almost um, totally opposite, actually. You remember the original meaning of philanthropy was simply love of humankind and nothing to do with money. It was about working together to achieve something. Mm -hmm. But over the years, it became um, largely about giving money uh, and, and increasingly about giving very large amounts of money from very rich, very wealthy individuals or from large corporations. And more than that, there's been a tendency to try and make philanthropy work like business, if you like, mm -hmm. to make sure that it earns a return on its investment, if you see it in those terms, to surround it with very detailed metrics and uh, data requirements, which are supposed to prove that something is happening and push resources to the, the organizations that are performing most effectively in that, in that narrow sense. Um, and I think more and more philanthropy is becoming the playground of the business world, um, which is an odd sort of conclusion, but that's where we are. And so it's very important, I think, to have a conversation about what's happening as a result. Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it somewhere in between? And what should we do about it? And I think the book tries to paint a, a sort of canvas of those strengths and weaknesses so that people um, who may not be aware of what's happening in this field um, know that something important is going on that may affect them in a real sense further down the line. And that was a fairly objective uh, way to describe the the perspectives that are, that you describe in the book. But it, you know, I feel like reading it, you, um, you get a pretty good sense of where you end up when you take that examination yourself. Um, so I guess I'll sort of prod a little more and ask. You know, what most people I feel like take the uh, idea that government and nonprofit should can benefit from a business-like perspective and that if nonprofits and government and philanthropy were more like business, that they would be more efficient, they would be uh, more innovative and they would have better success. Mm -hmm. And I, you're not so sure. Exactly. And it's partly because people mean very different things when they say behave like a business or work like a business mm -hmm. or be business-like. Right. You know, if it's only being organized, if it's being professional or dedicated about what we do, uh, doing the best we can and so on, then no one's going to argue against that. Right. I'm not arguing against that. I think any institution, it doesn't matter whether it's a business, a government department, a public agency, a nonprofit, um, has to be serious and disciplined about what it's doing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it won't do anything. That, to me, is not being business-like. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because many businesses, let's face it, don't have any of those characteristics. They're irresponsible, inefficient, incompetent, costly, wasteful, and damaging. Uh, and you could say that right across the board, you know, the principles that underlie good practice are pretty much the same. You have to have a clear idea of what you're doing. You have to have very good accountability relationships with the people you're working with. You have to build a team and, and work collectively and collegially and so on. You have to be sensitive to the environment that surrounds you. And we can reel off that list. None of those things are the possessions of one set of institutions in society. It's not being like a business. What business-like really means, and I think this is why uh, this movement is so important, is, is something much more narrow, much tighter, much more formal, if you like. Mm -hmm. And that means that we should see philanthropy as a form of investment. In other words, no longer giving grants that people don't have to pay back, right. but that we should really seek to make both a financial and a measurable social return on the money that we give. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, that means you're going to have to have much more, uh, much fiercer data requirements to measure whether that's happening or not. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to spend a lot more time um, gathering that information and analyzing and processing and so on. And you're, you, you're going to see, if you like, social change as an exercise in supply chain management. 
about inputs and outputs, about the most cost-efficient use of resources. And that's going to drive you, I think, away from your mission for social change towards doing things uh, that are more easy, that are less costly, that are less controversial, that don't, don't take so much time. Um, and inevitably, nonprofits are going to move down a slippery slope mm -hmm. as they follow that path. And so the, the paradox is that the more business-like you become in that sense, the less effective you may become in the social sense or the social and political sense. And that's why I'm concerned. And do you, have you thought of, at all about how that uh, trend in philanthropy, and it even goes outside of philanthropy, because um, even government funding agencies you know, really have taken a very similar approach mm -hmm. uh, with the contracting that they do with nonprofit agencies and, um, and even schools. Have you given much thought to how that plays out in the world of public education mm -hmm. or, or, or nonprofit agencies that work with schools and young people? Sure. Well, I'm not an expert in education, but I do try and follow the debate, and the debate is really hotting up, right? I understand it, and is becoming, I would say, almost a textbook example of the debate that we're talking about, the difficulty we're talking about, because you do have a very powerful, um, well-resourced school reform movement, which is very business-oriented, I think, very business-like, mm -hmm. and which sees schools um, as business units almost right. and wants to maximize their cost efficiency and their productivity. But you can only do that, as I said, by reducing education to something easily measurable, which means standardized tests. It means that you start to introduce market principles into the education system, which usually increases inequality and so on. So this is a great example of, of what actually happens when very well-meaning philanthropists and others decide to introduce these principles in, into their work. Uh, and I think one of the things that's interesting is that it's the education field where this uh, conversation um, is the most heated. Um, and I think that's because everyone cares about education. You know, everyone cares about their kids. And so you're having a full-blown public conversation now about the pros and cons of this movement. And people are beginning to speak up, I think, and to give voice to their anxieties about what's happening. Um, and not just the teachers' unions, who some people say will be biased anyway, mm -hmm. but independent intellectuals and uh, policymakers and thinkers, people who have um, decades of experience in education, I think are worried that by following a, a market reform process in education, we might achieve some small cost efficiencies in the system somewhere, but we will never generate the kind of education our children need in the broadest and deepest sense of that word. So we may be sacrificing some very important long-term goals in order to satisfy the demands of business-oriented philanthropy. You said that uh, introducing market forces often increases uh, inequalities. Could you, could you say a little more about that? Mm -hmm. Well, markets don't work on the principles of fairness or human rights or equality. They work on supply and demand. And so therefore they naturally privilege people who have more resources who can purchase more in the marketplace, who have more influence with producers, who are more powerful consumers, if you like. And therefore, markets will simply uh, push resources to the places where demand is greatest, not where need is greatest. They will, they will uh, reward those with the most resources, not, the most, not those with the most deserving cause. Mm. They don't particularly care about the quality of what's done or the costs involved. The, sim job, the, the job of market is simply to get things done in the most cost-efficient way. Mm -hmm. So markets are great at doing some things, but not in any human endeavor where um, most things are intangible 
and where we really care about who's benefiting and who is left out of the process, about the quality of what's happening and not just the quantity, about the hidden costs that are involved uh, and not just a superficial provision of a good or a service, which mm -hmm. is what you would find in the market. So although people in the business world would say markets can work in education, market, markets can work in healthcare, markets can even work in government and the media, as you said, this is a very general process. What you find when you analyse the actual results of introducing the market into those areas of life is rising inequality, lots of people left out of the process who can't afford you know, to, to take part uh, as effectively. Um, and you may find very effective services delivered to a small number of people at the top of the tree and everyone else losing out. That, that mm. tends to be what happens when you apply the market to human issues of health and education. But to, to try and, and play devil's advocate a little bit or, or try to sort of imagine what mm. um, some others might say in response, uh, mm -hmm. I'm, what comes to mind for me is um, an example like the, uh, Harlem Children's Zone. Are you familiar with Jeff Canada and Harlem yes. Children's Zone and that movement mm -hmm. a little bit? Um, the, he, Jeff Canada, the, the presidency of Harlem Children's Zone, has been able to bring together uh, – huge amount of financial and other resources mm -hmm. to concentrate on providing uh, schools and other services for young people and families in a particular geographic zone uh, of high economic need and mm -hmm. all of that in, in upper Manhattan in Harlem. Um, and so I, I think that some might say, doesn't it depend on what you set as the outcomes you're reaching for and who benefits from the resources that are brought together. So from a certain sense, what is happening in Harlem Children's Zone is, is as you said, costing a lot of money. Uh, and, and in a certain sense, it's, it's very businesslike in terms of looking to be as effective as possible at reaching their goals. But if their goals are helping every young person in the, within the geographic zone uh, graduate from high school and graduate mm -hmm. from college and achieve a successful career, and if they're successful in reaching those goals mm -hmm. or making great progress towards those goals, um, wouldn't it be good to be as efficient and effective as possible and use the resources that are coming in from private philanthropy, from government sources and other um, for the benefit of those most in need? Well, the Harlem Children's Zone is an interesting model, but far from proven and extremely costly, as you say, at a level which is virtually impossible to replicate on a large scale. So you could approach it a number of ways. You could say, well, if that's the case, why are we doing it in the first place? Because it would simply be an island of success mm -hmm. in an ocean of you know, poverty. Um, if there really is no possibility of replicating something because it's so expensive, then maybe we should rethink why it's so expensive and do, do, do something differently. Mm -hmm. The second set of issues are that you could, you could approach the goals of the Harlem Children's Zone in a different way, in a way that's been done many times before, which is to say, rather than starting very expensive, you know, but very good integrated programs, why don't we build the capacity of local institutions and local communities and people to do things for themselves mm. so that they can solve their problems over the longer term? It's actually much cheaper that way. It's more sustainable. But of course, it doesn't generate the short term results that you're talking about as very high profile, mm -hmm. which are valued by the donors to something like the, the Harlem Children's Zone. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are lots of ways you can slice the cake in terms of, of how you achieve the same goals that you might want to achieve. Mm -hmm. And Jeffrey Canada is doing it one way um, and has a very high profile 
for doing that, and deservedly so. But it doesn't mean anybody's right. And it doesn't mean that that is the best way in the long term. Mm -hmm. And it certainly doesn't mean that everyone else has to copy him. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think if this conversation was more open and um, more genuinely a way of everyone sharing in different ways of approaching the problems that we face and less about convincing everyone that you have to do it this way, yeah. we would actually get somewhere much more quickly because you can't replicate what's happening in Harlem in Mississippi or, or California, even if you could afford it, because the politics are different and the culture is different and the history is different and the needs are different. So what we need to be doing, if we're serious about attacking the problems of education, for example, is building everyone's capacity to get together and solve the problems in their own ways, which mm -hmm. are appropriate to their context. Mm -hmm. If we did that, then we would get results. But there may not be the results that you want or I want in years two, three, or four. But we have to accept that. That's not the, what we're going to do. So, you know, hats off to Jeffrey Canada, but I don't consider the Harlem Children's Zone as a great or sustainable model for reform uh, in the rest of the country. And th th that what you just talked about makes me think about other issues that we're looking at in ed education reform, because there's a lot of talk about um, finding, creating and finding models that work, and then... Um, the phrase is always, and I think this is outside of education as well, is always taking it to scale. How do we mm -hmm. take it to scale? Right. Uh, and we've addressed this issue a little bit in, in other conversations on Please Speak Freely where uh, some people would say that the the notion of taking a model to scale is not the right way to think about it. Um, but it's very attractive. Mm -hmm. when you when If you can look at, if you can find a school that's had some success, however you're defining success and, you know, Certainly, that's a whole conversation in and of itself. But if you find a school or a program that's achieved success, you want to find out what they're doing. And then let's let's even say adapt it to the local context, because no one says we should replicate this, do this exactly the same way somewhere else. Usually that's someone criticizing the notion mm. who says that someone else is saying that. But the, mm. I, I believe that the people who are advocating for replication or growth of a particular set of charter schools or other sort, sort of school or program is saying we need to take the practices that they have in place and adapt them to other local settings, mm -hmm. but we can find efficiencies by utilizing the same model elsewhere. Um, but that seems to me to be a particular worldview. Mm -hmm. um, is that reflective of the larger culture that you're addressing? Very much. You know, in my world, it will be replication and scaling up will be the, the most common currency. Um, and it really partly depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, if you wanted to try and make the banking system accessible to low-income families right across America. Actually, you probably would use the market and you would um, find out which model works because that's a problem that's very, I think, susceptible to those sorts of models. People need access to credit. That has to be provided by an institution. The institution has certain rules and regulations and assessment requirements. So I think there's something that will be relatively easy to scale up and, of course, we have large-scale um, microcredit and microfinance programs to point to now, which seem to work pretty well. But that's, a, that's um, a very distinctive kind of problem. If, on the other hand, you're doing something which is much more complicated and involves very different views even of what, what the goal should be, you know, what is a good education? Never mind how, how should it be provided. Mm -hmm. Never mind provided most cost-effectively. Then it's much more difficult, I think, to take that route um, because you're not dealing with what you might call a standard product, which can be doled out in millions and millions. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with something which has to be tailored. Uh, and even if you were, as you say, very aware of the contacts and very sensitive and so on, 
it may be that you have simply have to sit down with people and agree the most basic um, characteristics of the kind of schooling that they want for their children um, before you started looking at any models. And then I guess, you know, my advice is always to, to people, you know, find as much as you can that's useful to you. Learn as much as you possibly can from wherever you can find it. Bring in, you know, and enrich your information base as, as much as you can. But at the end of the day, you have to make a set of decisions about what's relevant and appropriate for you in a context where people may not agree with each other about the answers to any of those questions. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the idea of, of replicating or scaling something in that context makes no sense unless you simply impose something um, which is going to steamroller all of those differences and those debates and those conversations, mm -hmm. which is a little bit what's happening in the education reform debate, I think. So it's horses for courses, as we would say in, in England. You know, if you That's want to, yeah, it simply means you know you use the right tool for the right task. Okay. Um, no one would ever have a toolkit which only contained hammers or screwdrivers. Right. Right? You would have a whole range of things. Um, and so, if if your goal is to, you know, dole out millions of of, of low cost grants or mortgages and so on, you you might well find um, one model of standardized delivery that works. Mm -hmm. But when we're dealing with any human endeavor, which is intensely political, I think, and embedded in the in the locale and the culture and where people disagree with each other, you simply can't go that way. And, and that's very frustrating because it means, you know, you're going to have to get your feet dirty and spend quite a lot of time um, simply fostering a conversation about what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. I think that the other expression that brings to mind is if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Yep. Uh, the, you mentioned something about, you know, that the, essentially that the, what I think of as a factory model or the business model works when you're looking to actually produce the same, <clears throat> the same thing wherever you go. Mm -hmm. The other side of that to me is that it, it also sort of assumes that you have the same input wherever you go. So whether it's um, students or um, some, you know, something else in some other context that students are students essentially. And and what I've found is that there's a distinction made in the education reform movement that's unsaid, which is that, um, you know, poorer students are poorer students and they need something in particular. Mm -hmm. They need specific strategies and approaches. And we don't really need to think that much about the, you know, wealthier um, students and families in the same way. We need to think about them, but not in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that a, much of your arguments are about, what are effective and sound practices for accomplishing goals? But there's, mm -hmm. there's another sort of underlying thread in all of this, which is more a moral argument, it seems to me. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if moral is the right word, but um, that, you know, not only does it not make sense because all students are different, but that there's also something unseemly and inhumane about treating all students as though they were the same. Mm -hmm. I think there are multiple levels of, of moral and ethical arguments because all these things eventually devolve down to values what do we value most in our own lives what do we value uh, for other people um, that drives what we do in the real world whether it's in terms of funding or decision making or policy making or even research and i think um, what we have to do is find a way of putting values back into a central place in the conversation rather than hiding them away and pretending they don't matter because I think a lot of this debate is presented as though it was neutral, value three, value right. three. Who right. could possibly disagree, right? Mm -hmm. But of course, it's just skating over the surface um, because we disagree wildly, actually, mm -hmm. on the answers to even the most basic questions of life. 
And the secret of all democracy and therefore progress is to be honest about that and put them on the table and work your way through them in a way which doesn't marginalise anyone and doesn't privilege anyone. And I think one of the big ethical dilemmas that we face now, shown very well in the education movement, is who decides? Mm -hmm. Who decides the answers to these questions? Who has the right to intervene? Does money talk? Should it talk? What do we do about people who have billions and billions of dollars and very strong opinions about how they should be spent? Um, we don't want to say no to those resources, mm -hmm. but we, presumably we don't want to simply follow orders from someone sitting in San Francisco or Silicon Valley or New York who may not have any direct um, experience and certainly has no right just because they're wealthy to do what they like in the education system of a country. Mm -hmm. So there are huge dilemmas here of, of democracy and accountability and decision-making. On the one hand, in addition to the dilemmas you raised about the values we want our education to be based on, mm -hmm. um, do we want really to education schools simply to produce people qualified for certain jobs? Is that it? You know, because that's basically the way it's going. I mm -hmm. think. Um, or do we see it as a process of creating whole and rounded citizens who can be responsible and active in the world, who think about their role, who have much more creativity, um, and who become people who can change the world mm -hmm. in, in radical ways, if that's what we want. That's a very different kind of education, mm -hmm. and they have very, you know, very different consequences um, for the kind of education that's provided and even how it's financed. So uh, you know, we're rather afraid, I think, of having conversations about values because we think we'll, we'll get stuck maybe, mm -hmm. um, we'll never agree, it's divisive, it's political, I hear that a lot. But unless you're prepared to put them on the table and work through them, then they'll simply come back and bite you in the end. Mm -hmm. And it means that programs that you create will be erected on very flimsy foundations and will eventually fall apart because you haven't done the most important basic work of being honest with each other about what you're trying to do here. Mm -hmm. I recently saw a televised debate between Jeff Canada and Diane Ravitch. Right. Uh, I don't know if you caught that or not. No, but I, I know both of them too. Two, you know, interesting personalities. Yeah, sure. And uh, you can you can see it online <clears throat> if if you're mm -hmm. interested. It was part of a Education Nation thing. I think it was NBC. Oh yeah, that did that. And um, you know, Diane Ravitch. I, I I know I've mentioned her in previous um, episodes, but mm -hmm. and most people, many people involved in the conversation know who Diane Ravitch is. She was a you know worked uh, in the Department of Education under Bush one mm -hmm. and was one of the architects of the, the current movement of high stakes accountability, standardized testing mm -hmm. and all of that. And, and really pushed that for a long time. And in more recent years has taken a fresh look at that and seen sort of how it actually played out and uh, wrote a book called the death and life of the great American schools or the great American school system. I believe mm -hmm. that essentially says, you know, I, I was wrong and, and we were wrong. And we, we were misguided. We went down a path we shouldn't have gone down, and here's why. And um, it was an incredibly brave mm -hmm. book and inspiring to me, um, you know, to be able to take that – have that public of a conversation about uh, being reflective about our own perspectives. And right. just the idea that we can grow that much is, is inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. um, but get, get, getting to the, the story and the debate, uh, you just mentioned – it's important to look at who decides these things. And it's amazing to me how subtle the assumptions, how subtly the assumptions are made and how hard it is to question them. Um, and she's incredibly adroit at doing that in the debate with, with Canada. I can't remember who the moderator was right now, but he, uh, 
Diane Ravitch was talking about how much financial resources have been invested in Harlem Children's Zone and how that's a huge investment as, that, as you were saying, might be hard to mm -hmm. um, repeat somewhere else. And the, the moderator said, so you're saying that what we need is a huge uh, investment of private money into the entire education system. And she caught it and she said, no, I'm saying we need a huge investment of public money mm -hmm. into the education system. And I didn't even catch that he had sort of slanted the question that way. All I heard was, so we need a lot of money into the system. Mm -hmm. But that one that one word, private or public, that's that's a huge um, difference in figuring out who decides, right? Because right. if when it's private money, who decides is essentially you can count them on one hand. Mm -hmm. um, and when it's public money, there's obviously a whole democratic process in place, at least theoretically. Yeah. Well, you know, and you say at least theoretically, which of course is an important point. Yeah. You know, one can't be too sort of romantic about um, the ability of, of democracy or the public mm. um, to respond to everyone's needs effectively, mm. because we know that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. But it's much better than the alternative, which mm -hmm. is no access. Mm -hmm. As you say, people deciding in closed rooms miles and miles away, which no one ever has access to. You know, I think the public is very important because it means something that belongs to all of us something at which we have some say, some, some, we have some route mm -hmm. to make demands and to hold people accountable um, and to try and make systems um, re representative of a broader sense of where we want to go. And all successful societies have a strong sense of that. They have some sense of direction. And people feel, I think, that, that they have a stake and a share in success, that they can, however imperfectly, play some role, that they're not just, you know, robots or puppets or pieces to be moved around the, and the jigsaw puzzle, you know, that, that they are, uh, that they have views of their own, which have to be listened to. They have ideas which are important and they may not be right. And other people may not agree with them and, and, and so on and so forth, but they have a role to play and it's their right mm -hmm. and their duty, actually their responsibility to step up to the plate and do that. That's how you build communities and how you get effective institutions and how societies as, as a whole prosper throughout history. So it's very worrying that those things are being eroded, I think, by the trends that we're talking about. Um, and people, I think, feel more and more distanced from most institutions in society, whether they're public or private. They feel more and more disempowered. They feel more and more that things are happening around and they have no control over. Mm -hmm. And once you, I think, fall into that trap, um, something very fundamental has changed in society because it means no longer can the public direct society and push it in, in the direction that they want. Um, they become much more passive, I think, mm -hmm. uh, and um, therefore you lose a lot of the drive and potential that societies have to be creative mm -hmm. and to move forward in some sense of togetherness and solidarity. And we haven't talked about this, but I think a very important part of um, the reason I keep writing and speaking about this is because I'm very worried that the move towards the business's best approach, if we put it that way, right throughout society, is eroding older traditions of solidarity and working together and cooperation and community in the public spirit, which um, are the things we're going to need to get us out of the mess that we're in. Right. And once we lose those characteristics, then we have even less potential yeah. to solve problems in the future. Yeah. Uh, two things come to mind. The, the first one, and I'm re repeating something that I said on the last episode, but I was at a conference recently where uh, uh, so one of the speakers said that there's going to there's soon going to be 7 billion people on the planet, and we need to prepare our children to compete with every one of them. <laughs> right. Well, good luck if that's the message. You know, to total warfare sort yeah. of somewhere down the road. Yeah. yeah. But, but 
a, a more hopeful note, I, I think that I definitely identify with what you're saying as a general trend. Um, the recent um, Occupy Wall Street movement and, uh, all around the world, mm -hmm. I think um, it maybe is a is the pendulum swinging the other way a little bit around people coming together and uh, mm -hmm. um, hearing different voices and that kind of solidarity. I've been traveling a lot lately, and I've been able to visit a few of them, um, which has been which has been kind of cool because everywhere you go, you can always check out the local Occupy. Right. There's one nearby us in Poughkeepsie. I was in. Right. I, I visited the Seattle one. I was in Boston just earlier in the week and visited Occupy Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's both the the messages and the fact that they're coming together and protesting and 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 staying there. But it's also the spirit in which they're doing it. I think that is sort of pushing back on what you're saying as the mm -hmm. the not only the business approach of do things effectively and efficiently, but the hierarchical top down. We, you know, find a strong leader and follow what they say. Mm -hmm. And um, this movement so far, at least, has been very strict about remaining democratic in, within their right. own processes. Right. Even if it takes meeting twice a day, even if it takes, you know, long, long drawn out conversations and that it's not even about the old sort of approach of finding consensus as a group and then standing behind what the group says. It's about that we all are going to be working on different things at the same time, and there's room for that. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Uh, and as I said yesterday, they were trying to work out whether they want to move to a more sort of formal representative system or process, mm -hmm. at least in the New York Occupy. Mm -hmm. And and all social movements do that. They start, you know, in a very formless way, and they try over time to preserve their power, but also to become a little bit more organized because that's usually what you have right. to do right. to remain effective. I hope it's going to grow. I think the real test, though, obviously lies ahead, and it's whether it can broaden its appeal mm -hmm. much more um, out into ordinary communities, if that's not you know, a silly way of saying it, across the country, um, because there's always a vanguard of people who are very highly motivated about something and get out into the streets and so on. Um, but they're only the tip, right, of the iceberg, and the iceberg has to grow behind them, which yeah. is hundreds of thousands of people who may not be so confident about coming out on the streets, but are very worried about the direction of American society. Right. And they had to get motivated. They had to get involved. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, you know, what, what one can hope there, but the, the problem is always that in times of great economic insecurity, the kind of times we're living through now, where most people are, are really struggling to make ends meet, they tend to be um, more risk averse and they tend to want to sort of circle the wagons around them and protect what they sure. have. And they may be less, actually, um, surprisingly, maybe given the problems that confront them, um, less interested in taking part in that sort of broad-based mobilization. Mm -hmm. So you always have a problem. When you really need people to get out onto the streets in large numbers, it's often more difficult to persuade them. Mm -hmm. um, and when things are slightly easier, often they feel more confident and more secure about doing that. So... Um, we're trying to organize at a time of great stress, I think, for most families, which is not ideal in terms of building a social movement. Right. I want to switch gears a little bit because there's a, um, something that, that's in uh, the book Small Change that I, I want to draw out uh, and, and ask you to talk about a little bit. Um, and I'm, unfortunately, my, the copy that I actually read and highlighted and dog-eared the pages and stuff is – I don't it, I couldn't find it. So I had, I had another copy. I right. bought a few. Um, and so I have that. And so flipping through it, I couldn't quite find the exact mm -hmm. um, part that I was looking for. But uh, there's this notion that when we try to focus on 
uh, data-driven decision-making, trying to be as efficient and effective as possible and tackling social problems in particular, that the, the hardest problems become, get ignored, aren't tackled because mm -hmm. there's no cost-effective way to do it. And even within the problems that we do tackle, mm -hmm. uh, we essentially, it, it becomes most efficient to not address the harder areas. So if, right. to put it in the context of, of school and youth development, uh, I work with a lot of after school programs who, who work with um, communities that are economically poor. They're, you know, they're, these are communities that are in need of services, certainly in need of childcare, in need of supports for young people, enrichment, recreation, et cetera. Um, and so most of the programs that go around, they say, well, we work with at-risk kids or we work with the kids who are most in need. And in a general sense, that may be true. But within each of those communities, the kids who are truly most at risk of making um, bad choices or falling mm -hmm. into dangerous behavior or dangerous situations are not generally coming to the programs because they don't have enough stability in their life to have a, a parent or other authority figure who's bringing them mm -hmm. or they don't choose to go because of the setting they're in. Um, and I feel like there's a real parallel to that for for other problems. I was going to say larger problems, but they're not larger. They're just more macro um, in, in other fields. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, it's certainly a general problem. You know, lots of examples in the book from workforce development, social services, um, international development programs, community organizing, and so on. Um, you know, traditionally, nonprofits, I think, had a philosophy that said, we will do whatever it takes to support people in this community or this process to do what needs to be done. And then we will find ways to do it, right? And find ways to pay for it if we need to pay for it. But we're not going to be making our decisions on the basis of selecting what we can afford to do or what someone tells us is more cost effective to do, mm -hmm. um, because then we know we'll only address one part of the picture. Um, and so nonprofits traditionally have worked on the basis of universals, human rights or, or values that everyone should be served equally, um, regardless of how much it costs. And I think that's a very important difference. As soon as you enter the market model, as soon as you apply business principles, whatever field you're in, you're bound to start to select because you know you can't do everything or you know you shouldn't do everything because there are some things that are not going to make a return on the investment that you demand or are not going to satisfy um, the demands that you have for short-term measurable indicators of success or, or something like that. So you're bound to start excluding. So this is a very important ethical question. On what basis do we establish our national education system or our national health system? Is it the basis of universal rights and access? Every child, wherever they are, should have the same quality mm -hmm. uh, education as anyone else. In the health system um, in the country I come from, in the UK, for example, we're lucky enough to have a national health system, which is free at the point of entry. So everyone gets the same health care, regardless of who you are. Um, that's a totally different philosophical and practical set of principles to applying the logic of the market. Um, and therefore, this is partly about what, what, what should drive institutions in society, what should drive politics and political decisions in the future. Is it a market view, which is inevitably going to be selective? Um, or is it a view based around certain sets of universal values and rights and principles, which says this is what we're going to do, and then we'll find a way of doing it. And if we have to pay more, we'll raise more. Mm -hmm. And if we have to find more, we'll find more. And if it doesn't prove to be um, the most cost efficient, that's okay. Mm -hmm. We're still going to do it because we think this is what's important. So it's a sort of very philosophical and, and ultimately a very personal question of what we want, what motivates us 
um, and how we see these these huge questions of health and education and social services and poverty and so on. Do we see it through the market or do we see it through human rights? It's really interesting. It's, it's so complicated because uh, I'm thinking about there's, you know, this all plays out in the details of how funding works a lot of times. So, you know, the way the RFP is, the way the request for proposals is written. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I've been around tables mm -hmm. where people are talking about that, you know, it's often on a cost per child for the services, but how much it costs to provide the services might be the same, but mm -hmm. how much it costs to do the outreach required to get the kids who you really want to reach there might be vastly different mm -hmm. depending on the quote unquote populations that you're working with, or just the, who, who the people are, who you're trying to um, support. And within that market system, one, one response to that could be, well, create a separate funding stream for those kids who are quote harder to reach mm. and you would have a higher cost per child to account for the outreach. But the problem with that is that then you're separating people into these categories mm. um, of, you know, foster kids or homeless youth or formerly homeless or mm. whatever it is. Um, and we're so that even the res the response, because I, I think that there is a market response to the problem. Right. But the market response has these other outcomes that that are um, right. seem to me to be. um really uh, detrimental to the way people think about other people. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think there are certain cases where under no circumstances could you apply a market approach because there is no money. You know, people can't pay anything. Um, mm -hmm. There is no revenue in the system. So you just have to accept that. I think it drives me crazy when people try and pretend that, you know, everyone everywhere and every problem can be subject to the same approach mm -hmm. when we know that isn't true it's never been true but you're right you know that the ways in which you can manipulate markets and pricing and everything else but of course it becomes very complicated and that introduces its own costs and bureaucracies and so on you have to develop a huge infrastructure basically to generate all the data that you right. need to make these decisions and so you you generate a huge you know bureaucracy when in fact you could simply say we're not going to go down that route Everything needs to be accessible to everyone in the same way. We'll fund it publicly through public money, which is Diane Ravitch's argument. Mm -hmm. So we don't need any of this other stuff. Um, and if, as the market would tell you, that means you're going to ha experience some cost and inefficiencies somewhere in your system, the, the response is to say, yeah, we know that. But we think it's worth it because we think we'll get a better system in the end. And that's right. what's important to us. Right. So you can you know, develop a sophisticated, um, segmented, you know, um, market approach as you like, but it's not going to be an effective substitute for what we should be doing, which is declaring, if you like, certain parts of society as a market-free zone. Mm -hmm. You know, the way in which we educate our children, the way in which we care for each other, the way in which everyone has access to basic health care and social security and a job above the minimum wage. These are things that should be guaranteed by us and our government because that's part of of the social contract that we have with each other. And if we can use markets and so on in certain points in this, that's fine. You mm -hmm. know, we'll do that. That's a pragmatic argument. Mm -hmm. But the argument of principle is that these are and should remain public systems accessible to everyone. You mentioned earlier that the, the conversation about values is an important one to have, but a difficult one to have that, that people often resist having. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you said it was because, you know, you're afraid you're going to get sort of mm -hmm. stuck and you're not going to be able to agree. I, I feel like there's something even more intangible than that too in our in our culture, which is that it's difficult to talk about things matters that are deemed um, too moral or too spiritual, even mm -hmm. um, to even use the word spiritual. I think raises a lot of eyebrows. 
Mm -hmm. um, when you're having conversations around public policy and um, services, social services and education. But it, the reading your book and listening to you talk, it really strikes me that there is something just um, underlying the whole conversation, which is that we should be able to talk about what's right and what's wrong and, mm -hmm. and the, the right way to treat people. Uh, and it, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's very gratifying to me because I'm often finding myself uh, not quite sure where to pin it down, why something makes me feel so bad. Right. Um, recently, I was reading an article um, and it was talking about the it was advocating for youth services in a particular city and saying there was a particular program that helps kids stay with their family rather than get taken away from their family and put in foster care. So it's probably counseling services and other sorts of uh, services that are provided to the family to help young people stay with their families rather than get put in foster care. And that the that will save the eventually that will save the city hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars because foster care is so expensive and statistically kids who are in foster care are at, are more likely to um, uh, commit crimes and like more likely to end up in needing other social services at a cost to the state. And that was the argument. And of course I support the program and I support the public funding of the program to help mm. families stay together. But the fact that we have to make the argument on a cost balance, a uh, cost right. uh, benefit ratio, instead of saying, this program is important because, you know, not at all costs, but mm -hmm. um, if at all possible, young people should be able to stay with their family and get the services and support that they need mm -hmm. for that family to be a loving, stable place to be. But that's like an unseemly argument to make in our culture, I, yeah. I feel like. I think that's true. And in a sense, it shows how far we've gone down this path towards marketization. In a sense, it's colonized even our imagination. So we can no longer think outside the box of costs mm -hmm. and benefits. And of course, once that happens, you inevitably are directed more and more to only certain programs and only certain kinds of activities, which qualify mm -hmm. under that sort of cost benefit analysis. So you will actually do some things and not others and select some populations and not work with others. That's inevitable. So there has to be some process of liberating ourselves consciously, intellectually, spiritually from the box we've placed ourselves in, because mm -hmm. only then do other alternatives become possible. In the, in the real sense. Um, you know, there was a time, it's interesting, isn't it, in the 1960s, I've been reading a lot about the civil rights movement, when people talked about these issues all the time. Mm -hmm. It was the centerpiece of public debate. It was all about building a world of love and compassion and community and getting rid of discrimination and realizing people for what they were, you know, human beings of, of full and equal potential, where no one was embarrassed about talking about love and compassion um, and uh, in, in the public sphere. Yeah. Um, and yet now you'd be considered a mental case if you started talking about love. But I actually yeah. do it a lot because I do want people to start thinking much more about the kind of society they're trying to build. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it has to be built on those inequalities of love and compassion and solidarity. If it isn't, it's not going anywhere. Mm. Um, Martin Luther King had a wonderful phrase to describe this when he said that our life's mission as human beings is to translate love into justice structures, by which he meant to take those inequalities of love and compassion, which define who we really are, and see them as a sort of positive virus that goes into schools, corporations, public agencies, non-profits, foundations, hospitals, prisons, and so on, so that they become transformed, if you like, in that same spirit, and they become nurturing. Think of this as a really revolutionary nurturing of love and compassion in themselves. Could you have a loving corporation, a loving governed department, you know, a lo 
So so you can, yes, you can, but it would look and work very differently to what we have at the moment. But that remains the challenge, you know, that we buried that away beneath layers and layers, you know, of bureaucracy and and market um, influence. And so now it seems a crazy conversation to have, but I, I wish we could get back to doing that because it makes lots of things possible, lots of different things possible. And you can start to think about the task of building new institutions, which essentially is what we're all doing. We're trying to build institutions that work in a way which is much more empowering and liberating and transformative than tinking around the edges, you know, of the school in terms of the salary structure or trying to make hospitals slightly more cost effective in terms of their patients. You know, these are not unimportant things, um, but they're such the tip of the iceberg that they're never going to get us very far in, in producing the kind of society we can be proud of. So bringing these morals, these ethics, this talk of love and compassion back into the centre of public debate is is vital. Um, and I think you simply have to move through it. You're going to get criticised. People will raise their eyebrows at you. They'll tell you they're crazy. Um, but my advice is persevere because that's the secret of something really important. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And I think that's a great note for us to wrap up on. Um, so, Michael Edwards, thank you very much for being on Please Speak Freely, and thank you for the work that you do. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm.